The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are the Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for the ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church, to, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and sh the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and a salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you could clap if you would like to. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let's begin our time in God's Word. 
in prayer. Father, thank you. Um, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it is that which will speak to our hearts this morning. And yet, Father, we also recognize our dependence upon you to uh, speak to us. And so we come to you again. You are gracious. You are kind. You're merciful. You are good. And so we come to you who is that, that you would minister to our hearts and lives wherever you have us this, this day. So thank you. Bless you. Help us to see the gospel again fresh with new eyes, Lord, this day. May we be, may we, we marvel at it so that it might move us um, to be people who honor you with our lives and with our words and thoughts, our actions. So we look forward to what you'll be doing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, our time this morning talking about West Coast, Coast churches. These churches face a variety of challenges. Their environment is anything but friendly to a vibrant Christian faith. Some churches located in self-sufficient, affluent communities are tempted to pursue personal peace and a comfortable lifestyle, relying on their financial resources for security. Others are stained by the scandal of sexual immorality. Some are stigmatized by their community as aloof and intolerant of other viewpoints. After all, the populists and politicians on the West Coast finding it expedient to cultivate a favor of power brokers in the distant capital show their loyalty to the system through a civil religion unencumbered by personal convictions. Some churches are experts in doctrinal precision, but amid the theological wars, they have lost the capacity to care for hurting people. Others are unclear about where to draw the line that defines the essentials of the gospel as they adapt their message to the culture in order to reach out or to fit in with non-Christians. Some churches are all image and no reality, lacking spiritual vitality despite an impressive array of activities. Others are a tiny minority struggling to hold on into the midst, in the midst of a community that ignores or despises them. West Coast churches. Of course, I'm talking about the situation, the strengths, and the weaknesses of the West Coast churches of Asia Minor, to which Jesus had addressed in these two chapters of Revelation. Or am I? <laughs> I could have easily been talking about the churches of the 21st century California, or about East Coast churches of the United States, or about churches right here in the Quad Cities. See, what I was trying to do for you there is in, in describing West Coast churches without specifying what West Coast, I was attempting to create for you a moment when you have somewhat of a paradigm shift. A paradigm. A paradigm is, is a word that means a pattern or model, the generally accepted perspective or assumption. And thus a paradigm 
shift is defined as a kind of a, a fundamental change to that pattern or model or perspective or assumptions. So that when a shift occurs in our paradigm, there begins then to become a shift in our approach to the world. I've had my own uh, many paradigm shifts in my life. Um, A few years ago, many years ago actually now, when I was at seminary, I was, I was talking to a classmate, an African-American, and um, we discovered that we had a, 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 similar, a similar love for or an enjoyment of uh, uh, track and field. And so uh, I had attended a small college, probably, that well, I know it was, the, the, in the smallest division of college athletics. And I was proud of the fact that I actually got to go to nationals in my event in the 800 meters. At this moment, there was this, this sense of greatness. And then a paradigm shift occurred when he told me his story. And in one sentence, he said, yeah, I was on the 1980 Olympic team as a sprinter. <laughs> a mini paradigm shift at that moment helped me to understand kind of where I fit myself in the world itself of greatness and track. Here's another example of a paradigm shift. Um, you may recognize this one if you're familiar with Stephen Covey's uh, Seven uh, Habits of Highly Effective People. Covey describes what he calls a paradigm shift that he had one day while on the subway in New York. He says, people were, were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway, and the children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet, the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you could control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze up as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time, and he said softly, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think. I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Covey writes, can you imagine what I felt at that moment? My paradigm shifted. 
Suddenly I saw things differently, and because I saw differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with this man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Everything changed in an instant. We've all had these paradigm shifts. Well, the, the letter of Revelation, and that is what it is, it's an epistle, it's, it's a letter from God to the church, an apocalyptic epistle. This letter is a letter about helping the church make a paradigm shift. The, the intent of the overall message of Revelation is to crumble our assumptions or perspectives about the world around us, what we see and hear and think and feel and how we behave. It's a book of paradigm shifts to move us from resting and trusting in a shadow, a counterfeit reality, to the substance, a solid reality that will secure and satisfy us for all eternity. So what we have here, we have seven West Coast churches here whose sketches could be located on the West Coast of Europe. It could be the West Coast of North America. It could be located in the East, located in the South, North, Midwest, Quad Cities, churches made up of individuals like you and me on all people who need an apocalypse. See, the ordinary, the ordinary dictionary meaning apocalypse is simply revelation. The uncovering of what is covered up so that we can see what is really, what is really there and we need to see what is really here. Here's the question I want us to consider this morning as we look at these seven churches. How has my compromise to the culture around me choked the flow of compassion for those around me? How has my compromise to the culture choked the flow of compassion for those around, around me? Now, John knew that each of these churches needed a, a paradigm shift to see a new reality to their situation because each were in danger of either losing their place as a light to the world or of getting discouraged and being faithful to their witness in the face of persecution. And so we need the same to see that reality so this morning, I want to show you four realities, and in these realities, we're going to look at two churches, the Church of Ephesus and the Church of Laodicea. So four realities trying to, again, answer this question, how has my compromise to the culture choked the flow of compassion for those around me? So here's the first reality. Reality number one, the kingdom of heaven is here. There is a king and he is sovereign over this world, and he is having his way, and he is ushering in that kingdom in through the church, through men and women and children who have the kingdom in here. So what were we taught to pray? 
our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are taught to pray that God's kingdom comes here today as we obey his will, as it is in heaven. The early church, they believed that the kingdom was present and they, they believed it because the first generation heard it over and over and over again from the Lord of the kingdom. What is it that he said? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were, we are, in fact, living in God's kingdom, a kingdom of truth and grace, despite all appearances to the contrary. This kingdom was actually present, but hidden from unbelieving eyes and inaudible, unbelieving ears. They believed it, but like us, daily had to fight against unbelief in the counterfeit reality that they saw and heard every day. Now, how do we know this? We'll go to your now, our passage, Revelations chapter 2 and 3, if you don't have it in your Bibles just yet. How do we know that they were struggling with unbelief like we struggle with unbelief? Well, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 7, he who, has ears, let, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 13, chapter 3, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Were you able to catch up, keep up? Oh, you didn't have it up there. <laughs> they got it. They got the point. We get the points. We struggle with unbelief. In the reality that is there because of the counterfeit reality that's right in front of us. And so we need to have ears to hear the truth once again. The reality is the kingdom of heaven is here. This was an appeal to hear like our mamas wanted us to hear when she said, Do you hear me? <laughs> when she said that, she wasn't concerned about hearing loss. She was concerned about heart loss, a heart of disobedience. The kingdom of heaven is here. And he was reminding them of this reality by reminding them of the king. See, last week, we, we think we know the real Jesus. So last week, John thought he knew the real Jesus. The seven churches thought they knew the real Jesus until Jesus revealed his glory to him in chapter one. That's what we were looking at last week. And so the churches need to hear that again. And so look what we have in verse one of chapter two. Uh, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold, gold, gold lampstands. That was revealed to us in chapter 
chapter 1, it's repeated particularly to the church of Ephesus. Uh, Verse 8, to the church in Smyrna. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That was revealed in chapter 1, but is reminded to this particular church of this particular facet of the glory of Jesus Christ uh, because they needed to know that for their issue. Uh, Verse 12, the church of Pergamum. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Or we go down to verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Chapter 3, verse 1. The words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Verse 7 to the church of Philadelphia. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse 14. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. All revealed in chapter 1. Repeated for each particular church because they need to know one particular aspect about this great God of theirs, this Lord Jesus Christ. There is a king, and he is sovereign over this world, and he has, is having his way, and he is ushering in that kingdom in through the church, through men and women and children who have the king in here. And turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 7, 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Paul is reminding the church of Corinth uh, of these gifts that they've received as a result of the Holy Spirit. But I just want you to hear this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Uh, speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. And there are varieties uh, of activities, but it is the same God. Speaking of God the Father, who empowers them all and everyone, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The, the Trinity involved in the heart of the life of the, of the individual. So Christ is here. Christ is here through the Holy Spirit. And Christ is here in, in our lives as those for the common good. See, the kingdom of heaven is here. In us. To be worked out for the common good. First reality, the kingdom of heaven is here. Reality number two, those of the king are given a compulsion. Those of the king are given a compulsion. What's that compulsion? It's a flow of compassion that results in proclaiming Christ. It's a flow of compassion that results in proclaiming Christ to witness, to proclaim the kingdom, to testify of the good news of Jesus Christ. See, remember this. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And nor do people light a lamp and put put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Compulsion is defined as an irresistible, persistent impulse to perform an act. So then in darkness, people are compelled, Jesus likening it to this, are compelled to light the lamp to bring light to their darkness. 
to their dark places. And, and it is inconceivable in Jesus' mind that they would light the lamp and then cover it so they would not bring light to the darkness. No, Jesus says they actually put it on a stand. And so when he is describing for John what he is seeing in chapter 1, he is absolutely clear what the imagery of the seven lampstands are there in chapter 1, verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. The church is to be a light into the darkness. The church has been given a compulsion to be a witness, to testify of the good news of the kingdom a flow of compassion, a flow of compassion to those around them, around us, around me. In the book of Ezekiel, of which John uh, borrows heavily from the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, some of the Psalms in the Revelation, but uh, there in Ezekiel, there's this wonderful description Ezekiel gets to see. He, he, he sees a vision of the temple. And in the temple, there's this little water that's just kind of trickling down from the altar. So he begins to follow the trickle of water. And he begins to find out that as he farther, further he follows it, a little bit wider it goes. So that it's wider and has, it's a little bit deeper. And so that it comes outside of the temple, kind of the formal temple area. And it begins to enter into Jerusalem, this trickle that's now turned into a little stream. And as he follows the stream, he discovers that as it exits Jerusalem, it's now a river. It's a river that's now uh, up to his knees, uh, deeper and wider. And as he continues to follow this river, it gets wider and wider until it's going out into that arid ground, uh, that arid countryside outside of Jerusalem. And it's beginning to become wider and deeper. And it's beginning to water everything out there so that there's green and fruit and vegetables in that area we call the Dead Sea. Life and refreshment to a place that's dead. The kingdom is here and there's a compulsion. And it's a compulsion to share good news of life and refreshment to a world that is dead to God. And so there's a compulsion to want to see that life and fruit in the world around us. But, you know, there is a third reality. And we're going to camp here at the third reality. The third reality is a danger. A danger. A believer's compulsion is always in danger of being compromised. A believer's compulsion to share the good news about Jesus Christ is always endangered, to, endangered of being compromised. See, you, you get a one-time reading of the, of the seven letters, and that makes it abundantly clear. 
And it's not by mistake that in the middle letter, the middle letter is the letter to Thyatira. So you got three letters, three letters. Right in the middle is the, 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 the letter to Thyatira. Right in the middle of that letter is a, he kind of steps out. God, Jesus steps out for a moment and speaks to all the churches in verse 23. So you look there at chapter 2, verse 23, middle letter, middle of that letter. And we hear these words, uh, these words from the Lord. He says, I, I, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. In other words, he's already introduced himself there in verse 18 to Thyatira as the one who is the judge who sees all. And so then he reminds us in the middle letter, in the middle of that letter, to remind him, I am the judge, and I see all, and I'm watching. See, without a regular many paradigm shifts, compulsion begins to deteriorate to just simply obligation. Compromise chokes this flow of compassion for those around me. See, this one apocalyptic letter is a circular letter. That is, it's circulated among the seven churches of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. It is one letter with seven personal addresses. So that in the nature of a circular letter, the intent is that they read each other's mail. The good... The bad, yeah, and the ugly. When the stakes are infinitely high, one, one's eternal destiny, plain church, pretending that all is well, is infinitely perilous. Community centered around the gospel, where there is an agreement that everyone present is more sinful and flawed in themselves than they ever dared believe, yet at the very same time a recognition that they are more loved and accepted in Christ than ever dared to hope. This kind of community is necessary to protect our compulsion. I need to know where my blinders are. I need to know where I'm compromising the gospel. I need someone to speak into my life to show me my sins so that I can know how I'm com compromising the gospel and thus choking off this flow of compassion that should be mine. What is it that I'm depending upon for my satisfaction, for my security that I think is reliable, that in reality is false, that is frail, that is fraught with all kinds of danger, that is in opposition to the gospel? I need a paradigm shift. Compromise endangers my compulsion to be compelling with the gospel. So we need to be open letters to one another. We call that MC, missional communities, fight clubs. 
When reading these seven letters, you immediately realize that the condition of the church as a whole is in poor condition. It's been compromised. We find here that not only are the healthy churches in a minority, two out of the seven, Smyrna and Philadelphia, but the very literary, literary boundaries, the, the first and the seventh are in the worst condition, both being in danger of being completely removed as a witness. See, chapter two, middle of verse five in the church of Ephesus, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Or we go to that seventh letter, chapter 3, verse 16, Church of Laodicea, picturesque of revulsion. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Both have been compromised, both for different reasons, both blinded by their own realities. So let's look first at the church of Ephesus. Blinded by the reality, blinded by the reality that they are compromised by stiff Doctrine, stiff doctrine, compromised by stiff doctrine. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now, this is... This is an alertness to doctrinal error that is commendable. They're a testament to the legacy that's been handed down to them from their first elders. See, these are probably the children of those elders who received from Paul these words that we have recorded for us in Acts chapter uh, 20, verses 28 and 29. See, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and he calls the Ephesians, the Ephesus elders, he calls them down to Miletus, which is on the coast there. He's in a ship on the coast. He's going to say, I have a few words I need to say to you, but I can't get up to Ephesus. I'm going to simply say this before. I go on to Jerusalem. This is what you need to do, Ephesus elders. He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which you obtained with his own blood. I now, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves... They will rise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And so this present generation has been faithful to that call. Look, to, look there at verse 6. Yet for, the, for this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans taught that it was permissible to participate to some degree in the idolatrous culture of Ephesus. See, Ephesus was dominated by pagan temples. The city's prosperous economy was partly dependent on trade associated with the temples. There are two temples that were dedicated to the imperial cults, that is, the worship of Caesar. And that meant to be a part of the movers and shakers of the community. To make a name for yourself, you had to play the political game. Sign off on the party line. Claim Caesar Lord. Well, the, Ephesians church, the Ephesian church's resistance to the pressure of this idolatrous pressure was, was very commendable. And yet, from God's perspective, here comes the paradigm shift. 
their particular compromise was endangering their compulsion to witness. The free flow of compassion to others. What was their compromise? Verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The battle against heretics, the intent to dot their doctrinal I's and T's, had left their hearts cold for Christ at the center of the gospel. They loved more truth, more than Christ, and this was evident by their witness to the world. At best, their compulsion had turned to obligation. Their doctrinal integrity was pinching their compassion for others. Their commitment to truth was squelching their love for the, of the Lord of the truth. So the remedy, so the remedy to the sickness of compromise is to encounter, to immerse oneself in the real Christ. Look what he says to them there in verse 5. He says, remember. Remember when you met Christ for the first time in the gospel. Remember the love that was yours for the news that he lived the life you should have lived, perfectly obeying all of the law, so that when he went to the cross, he died the death you should have died, removing the curse from the law from you. This is the good news. It's the good news that compels It's a good news that compels us to do the good work of telling others. So again, verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. See, a believer's compulsion is always in danger of being compromised. Surprisingly, for Ephesus, it was compromised by the church culture of tight, iron-class doctrine. Well, let's turn our attention to the last church. The other boundary of the seven churches to see how they were, I think this is important, so blinded. Verse 15, chapter 3. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here was a church that was so compromised with the culture around it that it had no discernible impact. Their compulsion had moved from obligation now to inattention. They become so impacted by the culture that they were blinded by their very condition. See, there were three cities in, in the area in one really walking range of one another. Hierapolis, known for its medicinal effects of their hot water, hot water springs. Colossiae, with its pure drinkable, refreshing, life-giving cold water springs. 
And you can guess what Laodicea had. Neither. They had access to water, but it was barely drinkable, far from being medicinal in its properties or refreshing. And when the city tried to pipe water in, it could only uh, manage tepid, vomit-inducing water. See, the work that he's referring to there in verse 15 is their lack of witness. Uh, The unbelievers of the city were neither receiving spiritual healing nor life because the church was not actively fulfilling its role of witnessing to the gospel of Christ. So look look how the Lord introduces himself there at the beginning, it reveals their compromise. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14. And the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So this is what Jesus Christ is claiming about himself, of what he thinks they need to hear in order for them to be cured from their problem, to, be, uh, to repent of their compromise. Jesus Christ is the amen. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of redemption. He is the faithful and true witness. He was faithful and true to his father's message of redemption, even to the point of suffering, suffering on the death, uh, suffering on the cross, the point of death itself. He is the beginning of God's creation. As he was present and agent, an agent of first creation, he is then also the present and agent at the new creation. He worked out the gospel. The church, Laodicea, the church was called to be agents of the gospel, being faithful and true to the Father's message of redemption, purveyors of the good news of Jesus Christ, that God is in the business of fulfilling his promises of new life to anyone who will receive him. But what was to be a natural compulsion to those who had received the medicinal effects and thirst-quenching results of the gospel were so compromised that they had become nauseating to Christ. See, remember that question. How has my compromise to the culture choked the flow of compassion for those around me? The Laodicean believers were blinded by a compromise to the material wealth of their success. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. It's tempting, you know, to equate economic prosperity professional success, material goods and comforts with spiritual health. We too easily assume that our surrounding culture with its relative prosperity and growing opportunities of comfort and measures of success as being simply Christian. 
But you know, our compromise doesn't have to be the idol of prosperity or success. Our, our fallen hearts are truly idol factories. So that like these churches, we exchange our love for God for a love of something else. So what really is an idol? Well, Paul made it clear to, uh, clear to us through Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Let me just read it for you. He, he says there, Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, he says, therefore, what is earthy, earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. See, idolatry is an active of the human heart, an activity of the human heart, a craving, a wanting, an enjoying, a being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness, a, a, a disordered love or desire, loving more than God, what ought to be loved less than God. So what is an idol? Well, it is the thing that we love. It is the thing loved, the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport or an immaculate yard. If we find God to be so boring, so negligible, that we must put other things in his place that really satisfy us more than he does, then we not only offend him, but we also destroy ourselves. See, Jesus says to the idolatrous church, he says this, look at ver in the verse 17. Oh, no, you don't got it. You don't, you don't understand. You're not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's your reality. Realities. The kingdom of heaven is here. Those of the king are given a compulsion to witness. A believer's compulsion is always endangered by compromise. So how has my compromise to the culture or the love of idols choked the flow of compassion for those around me? Thus, the fourth reality. We need the gospel every day. We need the gospel every day. Look at verse 18. I counsel you, our Lord says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness 
may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be seen. Uh, so that you may see. Uh, listen to this again. I counsel you to buy. Buy what? Buy from me gold. What else? Buy white garments. What else? Buy salve. So what's the currency? What's the currency that we bring to the table? It's the same currency we brought the very first time we heard the gospel and were saved. It's faith and repentance. Faith that God, what God offers is better than what this world offers. It's repentance, turning away from the things of this world as our satisfaction and security. See, he, he brings this paradigm shifts. He brings paradigm shifts into our lives because he loves us. Isaiah 55, verse 22, verse 2, it says this. It is still the question. Here's a still the question our father asks again today. Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's what he's asking us to do. And this is the message of the entire book of Revelation. See, Revelations chapters 1 through 3 is really just the introduction to this apocalyptic letter. Chapters 4 through 21 is the body of the book. It's going to be working out everything that we read in chapters 2 and 3. It's going to be worked out now in the rest of the body. And then we come to the conclusions, chapters 22 and 23. So what that, what is introduced in chapters 1 and 3 is now going to be worked out in the body, and it is apocalyptic in nature in that it reveals side by side the splendors and the terrors of the real Christ. Quoting from Eugene Peterson, a pastor, a theologian, who just recently died a few, a few weeks ago. I can't say it any better than he did, so listen to this. It, apocalyptic nature of revelation. It, it secretly sets a fire in the imagination that boils the fat out of an obese culture religion and renders a clear gospel love, a pure gospel hope, a pure gospel faith. How has my compromise to the culture choked the flow of compassion for those around me? Your loving father doesn't want you to spend your life for that which is not bread and that which will not satisfy. So here's the invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He invites a meal. He invites us to enjoy again his presence 
See, this is written primarily to believers. That invitation is to those who are claiming Christ, who once loved Christ and lost their love. Those who had been so compromised by the culture. And he's, he's saying back to them, come back. Come back. Don't spend your money on that which will not satisfy. I'm knocking. Let's enjoy a meal again together. It's not by mistake that John uses the same Greek words as found in the gospel's account of the Lord's Supper on the night of his betrayal and subsequent death on the cross. Luke 22, 19 through 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have a loving jealousy for us. You know that we will find our greatest joy when you are our greatest treasure. Thank you that you don't leave us alone. Thank you that you forgive us for spending our life on bread that doesn't nourish or satisfy. Thank you for offering yourself for us and to us as the one who truly nourishes and satisfies. We remember again the gospel as we take this bread, your life for us, and as we drink this cup, your death on our behalf. Cause the flow of compassion to again flow freely from us to those around us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.